Welcome back to New Books and Gender Studies. I'm the co-host of the channel, Lillian Barger. Today I'll be speaking with Megan Marshall, the Charles Wesley Emerson College Professor in Whitey Literature and Publishing. Her book, Margaret Fuller, A New American Life, published by Mariner Books, won the 2014 Pulitzer Prize in Biography. Marshall has written a beautiful and detailed portrait of the 19th century political thinker, women's rights advocate, and writer, Margaret Fuller. Fuller's childhood begins in Cambridgeport, Massachusetts, where under the tutelage of her demanding father, Timothy Fuller, she was immersed in the classics, excelling in language, literature, and philosophy. Her prospects, limited by her gender, considered plain and often lonely, Fuller went on to build an intellectual life in relationships with the leading transcendentalist. Her New England circles included the most prominent thinkers of her day, the Channings, the Peabody sisters, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Horace Greeley, and Nathaniel Hawthorne. Frequently earning a living as a teacher, she went on to write and edit the transcendentalist journal, The Dial, and began a series of lectures and discussions for women known as Conversations. The erudite and intellectually confident Fuller struggled with creating and living out a new feminine ideal that included the life of the mind, cross-gender intimate friendships, and mutuality, which she attempted to work out in her relationships with Emerson, James Clark, and others. After her tragic death at sea in 1850, she is best remembered for her book, Woman in the 19th Century. At the time, considered controversial and bold, explored the assumed nature of men and women and their relationship, and proposed a new model for egalitarian marriages of mutuality and respect. Marshall has given us a compassionate biography of a remarkable woman who was born ahead of her time and inspired generation of feminists. Here's my conversation with Megan Marshall. Let me introduce you to the author, Megan Marshall. Hello, Megan. Hi, thanks for calling. Welcome to the show, and thank you for sharing your thoughts with our audience. Congratulations on winning the Pulitzer Prize for this book. It was a yeah. joy to read. Uh, it was full, full of fascinating details about Margaret Fuller's life and her intellectual development. Now, before we start getting into the book, what I want you to tell us is, why did you write this book? What's your background, and, and what drew you to Margaret Fuller? Well, um, I don't have a degree in history. I am just a writer who started as a journalist, but in the uh, mid-1980s, I began getting very interested in women's history. At the time, Margaret Fuller was a well-known character. There had been a couple of important biographies written about her, and I got curious about the other women of the Transcendentalist group, that uh, sort of genius cluster, we might call it, uh, centered in Concord, Massachusetts, and Boston, Emerson and Thoreau, we know about them, uh, who were the other women. I wrote a book called The Peabody Sisters that took me 20 years to write from 1985 to 2005, um, doing a lot of original research. These were less known women, although one was married to Nathaniel Hawthorne and one was married to Horace Mann and the third was the founder of many of these uh, great rebellious um, institutions that the Transcendentalists took part in. Um, and when that came out in 2005, I said, well, you know, we all know Margaret Fuller. We need to know these other women, the Peabody sisters. And I started getting blank looks from uh, people. Who was Margaret Fuller? She'd been forgotten. This seems to have been her lot through the centuries. She was really probably one of the best known American women in the middle of the 19th century, but fell out of um, the public eye only to be revived in various 
period. So I just felt this was uh, really too bad. She's certainly the most um, formative intellectual feminist um, of our uh, of our country, and we wouldn't have had, I think, the women's movement of the mid 19th century, later 19th century, that brought women the vote if it weren't for Margaret Fuller's wonderful book, Woman in the 19th Century. And um, I'm, uh, I guess the kind of biography that I write is one that involves um, bringing often lesser-known women back into the public eye, and um, Margaret Fuller was was very much in my eye at in 2005 once it, I realized she was not being um, given her due any longer. Well, let's talk about Margaret uh, Fuller's uh, early childhood. Mm-hmm. Where's she from? Um, yes, well, she was born in Cambridge, Massachusetts, um, in 1810, and uh, you know this was a time when there was not much organized schooling for girls and women, and not much, no colleges for them to go to. Uh, but she was living in this, uh, you know, hotbed of intellectual ferment at a time when, in fact, men who could go to Harvard um, in Cambridge were becoming dissatisfied with what was kind of the, the, the routine, the traditional ways of of learning and teaching and of uh, worship as well. So um, it was really kind of a, a blossoming time for for women as well. Since men were throwing up their hands, women could kind of enter in too and join in discussions. And, and uh, so Margaret Fuller had a, uh, initially a, a kind of homeschooling with her father, who was a lawyer and also a politician, um, he would spend his days at work and come back and quiz her at night and um, was insistent that she be able to think on her feet the way uh, you know a, a lawyer would. She was the oldest of what became a family of six children. And um, after her was born uh, a sister who died in early childhood and then finally some brothers came along, but for quite a while she was first the only child and, and then the only child of uh, uh, school age for her father to focus on. It was his goal to uh, give her the education um, that uh, any boy would have preparing for college. Um, that's what he thought when she was younger. When she became a teenager, he he began to change his mind about what he'd done, this, the genius that he had produced. <laughs> Now, Timothy Fuller is a very interesting character in the book, her father. He was uh-huh. very demanding. Uh, he immersed her in basically in, in languages, literature, philosophy, a very classic education. Uh-huh. What was his motivation? Was his motivation was that she would marry well, or did he believe, uh, was he a progressive in terms of women's education? Yeah, well, he, I think he was really kind of um, ambivalent about all this. He, before he was a lawyer, he taught uh, um, in a girls' school, and um, he, of course, believed in that, or he wouldn't have been doing it. But he was also inclined to kind of dally with the with the young women. This was before he was married. Um, I, I think he was very um, ambivalent about what women's roles should be. He read Mary Walston. Crafts, Vindication of the Rights of Women, um, and thought it was a great book. It also argued for equal education for women, and but then he was worried maybe he shouldn't give it to his much younger wife to read. Um, and 
so I think while Margaret, I mean, this is maybe not uncommon, while she was young and so receptive to his education, such a brilliant mind, uh, I think he almost saw uh, first, um, you know, uh, uh, almost an experiment that he was going to pull off, showing what a, a bright girl could do. And he would tell her things like, you have the mind of a boy. This is something when she grew up later, a boy or a man, she really resented this. And of course, it caused her a lot of internal conflict as well. She didn't uh, want to live as a woman with a man's mind. She believed she was a woman with a woman's mind. Um, And uh, this was really a kind of basis for her later feminism and and the writing that she did about what now we would call gender roles. She was quite uh, forward thinking about that. So, um, yes, he, he was responsible in a way for making her the intellectual prodigy that she was. Um, but then when she was a teenager, became, you know, it was clear this was uh, a child who was becoming a woman and uh, what was she to do? Later, the questions she asked when she um, organized conversations for women in Boston, what, what were we born to do? He could think of nothing other than that she should make a good marriage and began to worry about that, began to send her to different kinds of schools, uh, hoping that she could be made more feminine, less assertive, um, even as he had been the one to teach her to think on her feet, to converse, to, to hold the floor, um, which was something she was really inclined never to give up. So it, it, she had a very conflicted relationship with her father. She adored him on one hand because he had formed her intellectually very early. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, he he was ambivalent about what he was doing. And so yeah. she kind of internalized that ambivalence, I think. Yes, and she did um, resent him greatly, uh, particularly he was an authoritarian as the, in the way that he ran the family. You know, they this large family, first they are living in a kind of a humble, relatively humble residence in Cambridgeport, then they move to a big mansion near Harvard, near Harvard University, um, and that's uh, where she was um, came to live after going to a boarding school for a while, and she was there at age 15. That's where she wrote these wonderful words to her former teacher, I am determined on distinction. She was very ambitious, openly ambitious, um, at age 15. Um, and, uh, but then he suddenly decided to leave, uh, politics and the law and move out to Groton, Massachusetts to be a gentleman farmer. And she was suddenly deprived of this very rich intellectual environment that she'd been, uh, used to. She was, many of her friends were Harvard students. Even if she couldn't go to Harvard, she had, you know, quite a, uh, she was a presence in these, um, literary salons for the Harvard students and the Harvard faculty and suddenly she was removed from this and he began to think uh, you know as she turned 20 and 21 maybe she would not make a match he set her to teaching her younger siblings and there she was off in Groton isolated and and very angry Um, and then uh, of course he suddenly died when she was age 25 um, and he was in his 40s Um, he had uh, contracted cholera in the uh, working out in the fields. He had thought he was going to be spending his time writing a history of the United States, but but uh, his finances weren't so good. He had to work the fields, and uh, he worked them as well as his sons mercilessly, and um, and died. So um, 
she was left the oldest child with a mother who was not a very um uh not used to being in charge in any way and she kind of had a vision that she was going to take over the father's role um and she was going to need to be the one to support the family and help her brothers get through college and her sister, uh, one surviving sister, who was quite a beauty, see that she might make a good match. And, and her whole life changed when she was 25. Um, in a certain way, you might say, for the better, because she was no longer under the thumb of her father. And with this mission to um, provide support to the family, she uh, was going to leave the kind of relative luxury she'd been living in that was also a sort of gilded cage. Let me ask you, uh, let's go back, uh, uh, talk about mm-hmm. her mother. Um, mm. Her mother seems sort of uh, insubstantial in the book, sort of mm. a kind of a shadow figure in the background that really never, she doesn't really interact with her in a very meaningful way. Uh, what, what was that relationship about? What kind well, of woman was she? Her mother was, um, you know, only 20 when she married, and um, so not much older than that when Margaret was born. Um, They actually had the same name. Her mother was named Margaret, although spelled with two T's at the end, and Margaret Fuller, who we know as Margaret Fuller, was named Sarah Margaret Fuller, and and, uh, there was a kind of, actually the father set up almost a competition between the two of them as to who would who would, uh, you know, gain his interest more, at least in an intellectual sense, and the mother not having had the same kind of, uh, you know, domineering father who taught her the classics really couldn't compete in that way. She also was um, inclined to depression. I mentioned the um, Margaret's younger sister who had died when Margaret was, I think, four, and this little girl was just two, and and um, her mother really entered a, a depression that very much, you know, was represented a kind of loss to Margaret, uh, akin to the loss of the of the sister. She, her mother was really not available to her for quite some time, uh, lost in this depression. And she recalls seeing her mother just sitting out in the garden. She always associated her mother with gardens and flowers. And and later, as she was kind of wrestling with the um, domineering side of her father in retrospect um, and trying to resurrect a kind of ideal femaleness it was flowers that she thought about and, and it's really not surprising I think that when uh, Timothy Fuller died um, her mother also became a bit uh, more independent more of a family leader even as you know maybe Margaret uh, became kind of the father but the, her mother became more of a strong mother at that point, too, and, and their relationship changed and became much more, um, I think, interdependent from from there on. Now, her, but, fa- uh, her father, her father, when her father dies, uh, her father was never really uh, spectacularly successful. He ran and, you know, he was a politician, as you mm-hmm. write, and he, he tried different things. But when he died, he kind of died broke. Exactly, which was a surprise to to the uh, her, his wife and children, um, and they were uh, he, he, the father had quite a number of brothers. One of whom, uh, Margaret's uncle Abraham, was one of really the wealthiest men in Cambridge, and there was some hope that he might help out. He hadn't married; he had no children, but 
he was uh, never approving of Margaret and her uh, um, independent ways and was a very sort of stingy man by nature. So he was the one who was actually supervising um, her father's estate, and it was just a very painful uh, matter to try to extract a little bit of money from him, even from her what little her father had left to pay for her sister to go to a private school and to because uh, actually there were few schools at all um, for teenage girls at that point, and, and to pay for newspaper subscriptions, things that Margaret relied on to continue leading this life of the mind. So at that point, she began teaching, and uh, not just her siblings, but tutoring other you know young women in foreign languages. She taught for a little while in Bronson Alcott's, uh, the father of Louisa May Alcott, his experimental school in Boston until she saw he wasn't going to be able to pay her um, and went on to a, a number of different occupations that um, she, you know, I think this is one of the things quite remarkable about her. She uh, was always looking for a way to leverage what she was doing into something that would lead towards her hope, um, as I said earlier, of, of of making a mark on the world, of of uh, becoming a woman of distinction. And she she thought of doing this not primarily not through teaching. She knew that teaching wasn't going to get her there. So she had ambitions for writing. Did she have yes. ambitions for speaking? Because uh, you talk about her speaking as not really being you know her sweet spot. Mm. Well, speaking was. Um, she excelled at this, um, but it was not um, considered proper for a woman to go on the lecture circuit. And she was still, I think, caught up enough in those kinds of um, a sense of, I don't know, if decorum is the right word, but um, she wanted to make an impact, but she couldn't be, you know, I think, I think if she had been a uh, a man, she would have certainly become a minister and would have um, held forth from the pulpit. Um, she, in fact, wrote some sermons for her friend um, James Freeman Clark to try out when he was starting out in his own first pulpit um, in Kentucky, and then he later came back to Boston to found one of the important churches there. But um, uh, she wanted to use, uh, I think what she felt was most important was to get women to speak their mind in in a setting um, such as the home or, um, you know, in classrooms amongst themselves so that they could stir themselves to some kind of work of the mind or or even a more public sort of uh, role in, in benefactions. She, um, she, but most of all, you know, what it was, uh, one of her favorite terms was fullness of being, she wanted people to realize their inner talents. And if women couldn't speak their minds, couldn't even utter their thoughts or organize them, um, you know, how were they to achieve that? So she began teaching in a kind of progressive school in, in Providence, Rhode Island, um, after she left Alcott's Temple School. And um, there she gathered together a, a group of young, you know, older young women, she called them, uh, and started teaching them. Uh, about the women of Greek myths and um, drawing out their thoughts about women's capabilities, which um, was really very unusual in the time. You know, we think about recitation as a big uh, means of 
educating, you know, both girls and boys in in the 19th century, you were you would memorize and and recite publicly. Um, but she wanted conversation. She wanted uh, these young women to be able to think and respond and give their ideas. And and this ultimately gave her the idea of organizing classes like this for adult women who were, if anything, uh, more suppressed in their in their ability to speak once they had uh, become wives and mothers for the most part. So um, this is something she's really best known for. Among the things she's best known for is a series of conversations, she called them, for adult women that she began to hold in Boston. She left the uh, uh, teaching in Providence and really was never a school teacher after that, aside from doing some language teaching of, of also of adult younger adult women. Um, but she, you know, this was really kind of a, a brilliant stroke for her, and she attracted um, a number of interesting women uh, to these conversations, including Elizabeth Cady Stanton was there in her the early days of her marriage, and Lucretia, sorry, um, Lydia Mariah Child, who had been a friend of Margaret Fuller's uh, since she was younger, although Child was older than than um, Margaret Fuller, and, and uh, it was really uh, an, also another aspect of her kind of um, determination not to do what you know the limited teaching role. She she uh, uh, managed to charge quite a lot for these series of conversations, so that um, she was earning uh, kind of on an hourly basis, or, or um, you know not not so differently from what her. Uh, you know, Ralph Waldo Emerson, who had begun to be a friend, what he was earning for his um, his talks uh, in in Boston. So um, she was determined on distinction and determined on remuneration. Okay, let, let's. I want to talk a little bit about before we go on with her career and her contribution. I want to mm-hmm. talk about her person. It it seems like what the picture that you draw is a. Sort of homely, plain woman who doesn't feel that comfortable in her own body. She has some physical issues, illness, frequent headaches. She has some kind of spinal deformity, and uh, her temperament. In a, and she has a temperament in which she, she says, "You quote her as saying uh, that she has a man's ambition with a woman's heart. Mm. Tis like a cursed lot." So mm-hmm. she's got a, her just in her person. She's got a lot of issues. Uh, her, mm-hmm. her her mother and her daughter, her sister, are both considered beautiful. She is not beautiful. She's also not socially very uh, apparently very in. Uh, doesn't have a lot of social graces that we would be considered for women at the time, even though she was a great conversationalist. Apparently, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, well, uh, you know it's. It, What's hard to hard to sort out is the perceptions of others and and what what was she really like? Um, you have to imagine someone who was kind of challenging expectations. Um, it wasn't uh, usual for a woman to be sort of so forthright in expressing herself, and I think that that uh, combined with her, you know, she didn't have conventional beauty, but a lot a big part of conventional beauty was also conventional behavior. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think she probably wasn't as, wasn't, you know, unpleasant to look at. I think she just wasn't, you know, uh, wasn't a great beauty. 
Uh, she dressed well. Um, she uh, and and made a point of that. And I think part of this is also why she didn't, you know, decide to take to the lecture circuit. She really was, um, you know, there were certain aspects of of uh, conventional femininity that she wanted to observe so that she could. Um, get herself into these uh, situations where she could speak, she could be part of a social scene, and and um, you know I don't know that she was so much socially awkward as just um, unexpected. And there were there were periods in her teenage years where she was really, I mean, she always was a very magnetic personality, and there were a lot of she had a lot of uh, girl friends who flocked around and tried to imitate her and. Um, she at one point used this cloak that she had for her book bag. She'd head into Harvard Square to the lending library and load it up and sling uh, her her books in the cloak over her back and drag them back up the hill to the mansion where she was living with her family. And apparently um, all the other girls wanted to have cloaks just like that so they could do the same thing. So, um, you know, I think that we have to... Um, kind of temper this notion of of um, awkwardness and and uh, unattractiveness with uh, the fact that she really had a great deal of charisma um, that sh- she uh, you know enjoyed dancing parties and had dancing partners at these dancing part parties but um, to attract people and to engage them in conversation was a rather different thing than uh, getting a marriage proposal and um, there was, uh, you know, there would be from time to time men that she was quite attracted to and, and might even uh, have a great, um, you know, conversational rapport with, but uh, kind of time after time they would not fall in love with her. And that that was uh, um, dispiriting. <clears throat> One of the things that I noticed throughout the book was that it seemed like the whole book had a sense of melancholy to it. It was a melancholy to her life, sort of a loneliness um, that she seemed to try to always resolve but never could. Mm. Well, uh, I think that she um, was an introspective person, and she was also kind of a realist, really. She was uh, saw um, that there were limitations on what her capabilities were. Initially, I think her uh, distress may have been a fear that she might never uh, uh, be able to express herself. And she really um, came into her own at the time of the the uh, peak of transcendentalism, when she was holding these conversations, when she was the editor of The Dial, which was uh, the publication which Emerson and Thoreau and others were, uh, and Fuller herself, getting their ideas out. Um, I think she did feel quite fulfilled at that time, but she was always looking for this, uh, you know, the attachment to someone, the, the ideal companion, whether male or female, and and, and kind of striking out uh, in that way, which is a big reason she decided to move to New York City. But just to speak to your question of the, the sense of melancholy overshadowing the book, I think, um, you know, it's no secret, I, and I don't hide this, it starts out, the book starts this way, that she, uh, Margaret Fuller, died young at age 40 in the in a, a terrible shipwreck, um, and all that we're talking about here, she'd accomplished before age 40, and yet I think that there's almost a sense of a of a faded life of uh, of a woman of 
just incredible capabilities who realized many of them. I mean, writing this book, Woman in the 19th Century, she also traveled to the West, writing about um, the plight of the Indian and of the environment in the West, um, all of this, and, and then ending up in in Europe as a foreign correspondent, the first American woman foreign correspondent, and, and being on hand during the great revolutions of 1848, and, and it's there, you know, we can talk about it later, she... She falls in love and finds happiness and, and has a child. So, but, but we know all the time that, that this is uh, going to be a short life and, and that it's a whole lot packed into just four decades. And, and I think that um, gives a sense of urgency um, and fatedness to this story, which I really tried to capture in the narrative. Well, you definitely did. One Thanks. question that I wanted to ask you was about these conversations that she's having with women, these salons uh, where she's lecturing, and she's also presenting, she's providing education and mm. also uh, teaching women to articulate their ideas. And at first it just starts with women, but then she uh, attempts to bring men into the con- into these conversations. Mm-hmm. And yes. I, what happens when that when that occurs is really inter- was really interesting in terms of mm-hmm. ger- the gender dynamics. Mm-hmm. It's so. Um I mean, both uh, when you find, uh, luckily I was able to find uh, records of, of both of the conversations among the women and of the conversations when in this one uh, series, one, one semester we might call it, where the men joined in. And um, it is sort of eerily like uh, what you might expect would happen today as well. You know, um, the uh, first among the, the women, they get talking about, well, you know, what, what are single women to do and when do we give up on looking for a mate and those kinds of things and, and what, 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 what should we do if our sons want to be poets rather than go into business? Of course, they think they want to encourage their sons to be poets because this is the kind of women they are. But anyway, the, the, the conversations among women were really uh, becoming so... Uh, kind of attracting a lot of attention. Um, people would, uh, she held these conversations on the morning before the, or in the middle of the day, uh, before Emerson gave his lectures. And so the women would often go to the conversations and then go on to the lectures and, and the people attending Emerson's lectures would, would hear about what's going on. They began to say, well, you know, we'd like to do this too. Um, and she invited, uh, a number of the uh, kind of disaffected ministers who were part of the transcendentalist group and Emerson himself showed up at some of these and, and um, you know, we really could just imagine what happened. I mean, that there was a kind of collaborative, mutual, educating openness among the women that was suddenly kind of closed down by these men who would uh, try to hold forth or dispute or uh, you know, and one of Margaret's big complaints is they would always be turning the conversation around to doctrinal points uh, in in uh, theology, which was really a big preoccupation of of the men of, of transcendentalism, and uh, that just really wasn't at all what interested her, and what or what had made the conversation so wonderful among the women. Um, the men had different questions to ask, and and. Uh, and, um, you know, we're kind of showboating often. Uh, so it's kind of exciting to see this recorded and, and to watch Margaret um, try to, uh, you know, bring them around. And um, in the end, it really was 
not a very successful series. The conversations among women went along uh, for three more years after that before Margaret um, moved to New York City. But um, uh, another though factor in in the kind of disintegration of the co-ed conversations was that the transcendentalism itself was taking different tacks and and a whole group of of people who had been attending the conversations kind of split off to start this communal uh, Brook Farm uh, in uh, West Roxbury's on the outskirts of Boston, which was something that interested Margaret, and she often would go out there to visit and sometimes hold conversations out there. Um, but um, that that was a number of the people who had been coming to the conversations, the co-ed ones, had had moved out out of town, and so that was another reason for their um, dispersal. You also point out, though, that her, uh, the way she acted or performed or did her conversations with it was just women mm-hmm. was different than when she was engaged in conversations with men around. That she herself sort of mm. changed her behavior uh, somewhat. Yeah, well, I think if she was in a kind of a social situation, um, she was able to spar and... and uh, you know, dispute and argue with men uh, in the in the same kind of way that they were inclined to talk. Um, when she was with women, she was more inclined to be drawing them out, and um, maybe she'd uh, you know give her opinions, but she was really more interested in getting them to speak. Um, the men, you know, they weren't interested in getting the women to speak. <laughs> they were interested in hearing themselves and having these, you know. Um, uh, intellectual disputes, which can be fun. You know it can be fun. We know it now. Um, and I think, you know, let's hope maybe there's not such a... Well, of course, here here we do have, you know, men are from Mars and women from Venus, whatever. They, maybe men and women are inclined to speak in different ways. And, and I think that's what's so kind of exciting about reading these transcripts is, is you get this sort of it was ever thus kind of feeling. Um even as it's, uh, you know, the beginnings of really an American intellectual tradition, uh, um, that's what's going on in the 1840s um, here in New England. Okay, well, let's uh, talk about, there's a lot of men in her life uh, mm. that come in and out, and uh, men she's uh, romantically interested in, men who she engages with intellectually. There's, I mean, it's, it's a who's who of, you know, of New England. Mm-hmm. amazing number of very famous people that she just happens to be around all the time. But there's two men that I want to talk about that I think a lot of listeners mm-hmm. would be interested in, of course, is Ralph Waldo Emerson, her relationship with him, and then James Clark. Mm-hmm. Uh, those two, uh, I didn't know about James Clark, and I thought that was a very interesting relationship. So if you uh, let's talk a little bit about Emerson. When, yeah. when yeah. How she met Emerson, what was the the relationship between her and Emerson and Emerson's wife. Uh, mm-hmm. It was a very interesting dynamic. Yeah, you know, Emerson, um, uh, really such a central figure. Um, he was, uh, let's see, about seven or eight years older than Margaret Fuller. And um, by the time she met him, he'd begun, he'd, he'd left the ministry. He'd had a... a uh, marriage to a much younger woman who died young, um, and then, you know, perhaps too soon remarried to, uh, Lydia Jackson, whose name he changed to Lydian, so that, um, 
the uh, Massachusetts accent wouldn't destroy her name if if you're Lydia Emerson. People were inclined to say Lydia Emerson, so he said she should be Lydian Emerson, and people have taken that as a kind of authoritarian, paternalistic thing for a husband to do to change his wife's first name as well as her last name. But at any rate, she was um, uh, actually a bit older and um, older still than Margaret and a, and a woman of great intellect as well, but um, but a little bit more conservative in her religious outlook than, um, than Waldo Emerson, as he was known, not Ralph, but Waldo Emerson. Um, and they had hoped to set up a kind of almost communal household in Concord with uh, Emerson's brother Charles and his um, uh, fiance, who was she, he would was expected to marry. But many of um, there was a lot of tuberculosis in Emerson's family, and, and Charles died before this was to take place. So Emerson had this big house, had had an expectation of a kind of uh, you know. Uh, life of the mind to be going on within the household and turned it, it turned this house um, into a sort of um, uh, well you can't really call it a salon because it would go on for days and days he liked to have people come and stay with them and and never mind that Lydian had to kind of be the housekeeper for this commune almost so Margaret Fuller uh, stepped into this world um, Having heard a great deal about Emerson, his lectures, she hadn't yet met him. She knew about the sad uh, uh, loss of his brother and even had written a poem about this that she showed him. And that endeared uh, Margaret to uh, Waldo from the start. Um, But, you know, it was a friendship that I think was, you know, um, perhaps the most important friendship for both of them. They were sounding boards to each other. Uh, Margaret would dispute uh, issues of um, one of the things they like to talk about a lot, in fact, probably to Lydian's um, dismay, was marriage. What what could a marriage be? And Margaret was rather disillusioned about what marriage could be, having witnessed her own parents' imbalanced marriage and, and uh, many of her uh, students had gone on to marriages that were not uh, uh, particularly uh, liberating to them. Um, and, of course, in those days, uh, a woman really kind of lost her legal identity once she was married and even in the case of divorce had no right to uh, raise her children after that. So um, these, there were political issues and legal issues behind Margaret's uh, dismay about marriage. I think Waldo's dismay about marriage was much more a personal one, and 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 uh, he was a man of, you know, we we think associate self-reliance with with Emerson. That was really his his uh, big pitch, and I think a lot of it came out of being a, a, a kind of a solitary man, even as he sought companionship from others, intellectual companionship. Um, he he had a you know I talk about melancholy hanging over a person's life. I mean his his uh, father had died when he was young, and the, his favorite brother and other brothers, and later his first child, um, little Waldo, died at age five. And and um, for him to uh, rouse himself to form connections was always quite a challenge. And the fact that he 
was so attached to Margaret Fuller, often had her come stay for weeks at a time, um, and, uh, you know, looking forward to walks together in the woods where they would converse and, and, uh, um, you know, conversations, uh, by the fire over at meals. Um, you know, that, that was what he really, uh, enjoyed with her. And you can understand how Lydia might have felt, um, you know, upstaged by this woman coming to visit. I think Margaret, perhaps naively or deliberately, obtusely, uh, you know, just really thought of herself as not uh, in any way a uh, romantic companion to Waldo. So why would Lydian be troubled, you know? And um, again, she kind of returned to this idea of fullness of being, that we should all have the relationships friendships and that that would draw out the best in in us and shouldn't Lydian be happy that she was there and you know occupying Waldo and getting his thoughts going and comparing their writing and and you know much of the time she was also editing his writing as the editor of the dial um later he, when she saw there was no pay in that he took over the editorship and she would spend time out there writing essays that he would be editing as the editor so um it was, uh, in some ways, really a marvelous, uh, very productive friendship for, for both of them. Um, and uh, I said, you know, I don't think there was any romantic component to it, but, but you know, he was older, she was younger, there was a, you know, he had had no sisters, she had uh, lost her father. I think it was a real, maybe almost familial relationship as well as the intellectual one. Um, that bound them together. Even once she had, you know, moved on to New York and to Europe, they continued to correspond in very uh, meaningful ways for now, both of them. But it seemed to me also that he he could be cruel and dismissive of Margaret. Yes, yes. I think um, I think she felt that when, uh, particularly when he um, just simply didn't understand what she was after um in terms of the friendship i think she wanted more uh closeness more intensity than he was able to give and he could brush her off when he felt she wanted too much of him um but i think uh he also was very a wonderful editor and there's a great moment when um you know early on when she's writing early pieces for the dial he says well, you know why don't you speak from yourself, speak in the first person. Um, and when she began to do that, to write that way, uh, her writing just really took off. So um, I think he he saw what was there in her. He just maybe uh, didn't want to be entirely responsible to it. So what about James Clark? Yeah, so, well, that friendship was a little earlier than with Emerson. It was a very formative one when uh, Margaret had as I explained, a a particular early love disappointment. Um, James Freeman Clark was a good friend of this um, uh, George Davis that she'd been um, fallen for and he had spurned her. And uh, James kind of stepped in at a moment when she was lacking, um, I guess you'd have to say male affirmation from someone in her own generation. and, And she wasn't looking for romance with James Truman Clark, nor was he from her, although, um, you know, you have the sense that maybe she wouldn't have minded. She she really kind of 
almost toyed with him as he was also suffering from a romantic disappointment. Um, but they became uh, kind of fellow seekers, I guess. And it was the two of them together learned the German language so that they could read great works of German romantics together. And, and um, you know, James Truman Clark was always feeling uh, kind of outdone by Margaret and her, the pace of her learning and understanding. And, and he really looked to her as a, kind of an intellectual, um, I don't know, uh, almost competitor <laughs> um, uh, to uh, keep him driving uh, to to reach kind of the highest standards of intellectual inquiry, again, at a time where Harvard uh, College and Harvard Divinity School were um, a little bit dull, and uh, they, he wasn't studying German at Harvard. It wasn't uh, there was very little opportunity for that. If any, it wasn't part of certainly the Divinity School curriculum um, at the time. And uh, so they uh, they were friends in Cambridge, and then their friendship continued when she moved to Groton by letters. And and then uh, it was you know kind of an inevitable moment of of stress and strain when he graduated from divinity school and had a got a job and and left town and and was able to become you know an effective person in the world they had both been struggling as to whether they would be able to exert their powers and and there were roots for him and there wasn't for her and he was uh there's a, just a wonderful correspondence um between them uh in in which you consent his in a way, his full understanding of the dilemma that she faced, um, and he's a great one for articulating that, um, and even as he wasn't about to fall in love with her and help her, uh, you know, solve at least the romantic question in her life. But, you know, I don't think, I think had she married, it would have been a big struggle for her to become the woman that she did. Who knows? She She wouldn't have been the Margaret Fuller who's who uh, served a biography, perhaps, if she'd married earlier. Okay, through all this uh, extraordinary sort of life, she's thinking about marriage in terms of uh, the ideals of marriage, Mm -hmm. what it means, how to reformulate it. She's having conversations with Emerson about this. She's also thinking about the feminine ideal, and she's trying to come up with a new feminine ideal, Mm -hmm. some way to recast what it means to be a woman and a man and how that relationship works out. Mm-hmm. She's a editor of the dial and yeah. which gives her an incredible platform. And then she writes an essay called the great lawsuit essay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Talk about what was that essay? Cause it seems to be the thing that it leads her on to write women in the 19th century. Yes. Yeah. It was uh, the basis of women in the 19th century. Um, it's interesting that, you know, given she had the lawyer father, that she framed this uh, essay in terms of a lawsuit, woman versus women, man versus men. She had very early on this notion that we kind of take for granted today that the culture we live in uh, affects our sense of what it means to be a man or it means to be a woman. She was arguing for for the individual, for fullness of being, uh, as she said in the essay, you know, we think that male and female represent two sides of a great radical dualism, but in fact, they're perpetually passing into one another. There's no wholly masculine man, no purely feminine woman. Uh, what a modern notion. 
um, that she had in you know uh, 1843 when she wrote Woman, oh, wrote the Great Lawsuit. That's that's from there, and then carried over into Woman in the 19th Century. So um, she, uh, you know, where did these ideas come to her? They sometimes they seem so fresh and new. They they you know just as if out of the blue. But I think you can trace them back to the education with her father, where he was telling her, "You have the mind of a man," and she said, "But I'm not a man." And and these uh, conversations with women as she was uh, formulating her ideas, helping women to speak. Um, some of the things she writes in this book, she says, um, you know, uh, let um, all, all barriers should be set aside. Every path be open as freely to woman as to man. Um, it's really extraordinary writing. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it it's just so um, so formative. I mean, this is where all the all the uh, suffrage uh, suffragist women got their ideas. Where uh, the women of abolition were who peeled off into women's rights. Uh, this is their kind of their bible. Um, and she came up with this in in 1843 uh, in a way that was not you know, really just about women. It was also about men um, helping helping women, men finding, in fact, their own feminine natures as well. Um, it was really a, a whole revision of, of, of the sexes of what we today would call gender. And, and you can imagine it was a very controversial book. Um, Thoreau, who was, she, who was uh, younger even than she, um, and she had been his first editor in The Dial, um, he said, oh, you know, you should publish this yourself up here in New England the way I'm doing. You know, um, his books weren't selling at all. And she, um, the great lawsuit caught the attention of Horace Greeley, who had uh, founded the New York Tribune, this great uh, progressive daily newspaper, which also had a weekly edition that went out through the whole country. And he would invited her down to write for the Tribune to be his first page columnist and and uh, it was his idea that she expand the the, um, the uh, great lawsuit into a book and that he would publish it. And sure enough, being published out of New York, that brought her uh, a much greater readership. The first edition was sold out in a week. They were selling like hot cakes, and it was pirated in the British edition. She developed a whole international reputation really very quickly, um, which then enabled her to be a... Uh, strong presence in Europe once she got over there. But, you know, I think the other thing that that really was very, uh, you know, dramatic in her life at this time was a uh, sense once she had her say on women's, uh, the women's issues, she turned to, you know, all kinds of issues as, as the columnist for the New York Tribune. She, um, uh, you know, I think Greeley had thought she'd be writing about literature and art, which she did some, uh, but she began becoming what we would think of as a kind of investigative reporter or a embedded reporter or a new journalist, you know, going to, um, uh, you know, prisons and um, uh, orphanages and um, uh, all sorts of places around Manhattan that were, uh, uh, she went to the tombs um, and, and wrote about these places and really her, she felt it was very, very powerfully that it was her job as a journalist. She suddenly kind of 
threw herself into this career as a journalist to to uh, um, bring the readers who didn't know about these places into a whole different world, um, writing often in the first person, as Emerson had suggested she do a few years before, and and um, really going out into the world in a way that the other transcendentalists really never did. Um, you know, Emerson and, and Thoreau, we can't... Um, uh, knock their accomplishment, but but um, uh, they didn't go out into the world. Margaret was the one of the three who did, and um, and she really did make her mark. Now, Woman in the Nineteenth Century. If anybody has read it, if you, one reads the book, it is quite evident that uh, her father's influence on the book, in terms of she brings in politics and law and religion and philosophy and literature. She draws from multiple and broad uh, culture, cultural mm-hmm. ideas to make her point, mm-hmm. which I think and the is... whole catalog of, of sort of mini biographies of interesting women as well. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, she's she's using she's using everything available to mm-hmm. make her argument. She, she, and her, you, know, you can see how her education, uh, mm-hmm. early education, kind of shaped her in that way to think very broadly and to draw from all kinds of sources to really come up with arguments. Mm-hmm. And I think it, I can see why the book would have it endures. It endures mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. Of, of that feature. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, she, Greeley, I think, is that right? I, I, I can't quite remember, uh, sends her to, to Europe uh, yeah. with the newspaper to cover European events. She, uh, well, in a way, he sent her more, she asked to go. Okay. <laughs> um, and uh, she'd always wanted to go to Europe. She had, uh, you know, her, her classical education had given her a sense that this was where the, the source of great ideas. And, and even though she contributed to uh, a new American intellectual tradition, she really helped start that. Uh, she had always wanted to see Europe and, uh, she had the opportunity to go. I mean, the, the the payment that she got as a foreign correspondent wasn't enough to support the trip, but uh, but she had the opportunity to travel as the tutor for a young son of, of friends of hers who were also in the reform-minded sorts, and and uh, they paid her voyage over, and they paid for her room, and and uh, so she could. She could travel with them, and they went to England and Scotland and France, and ended up in Italy. And and uh, um, at which point she was a little tired of of being a governess. And although mercifully, in a way, this little boy was rather sickly, and so she often didn't have much work to do, didn't uh, have much teaching to do. And and of course, these uh, this family, the Springs, were uh, who were uh, Quakers and. Um, interested in um, new communities, the Brook Farm sort of thing. Um, they knew they were traveling with a celebrity, and they were also uh, kind of using Margaret Fuller's reputation to be invited to meet people like uh, Wordsworth and Thomas Carlyle. And um, one of the great uh, friendships she made in London was with Giuseppe Mazzini, a Italian uh, intellectual and, and uh Patriot and revolutionary who was in exile in London, and and um, there she began to get very interested in the um, in the idea of the unification of the different uh, states of Italy, and uh, you know getting rid of the 
external powers that were running these different uh, parts of Italy, and um, she was very taken up by this cause and became, you know, Mazzini's kind of uh, voice to the American readership um, when the revolution began to happen in 1848 and 49, and he returned gloriously uh, to help with that cause, and and yet, of course, it was a failure at that point. The real Risorgimento wasn't until another uh, couple of decades, and um, so, or the successful Risorgimento, and um, so th- there she was in in Italy, and um, also finally falling in love. Um, she had. Uh, an affair with a young, much younger, handsome man, and so I think this tells us that she had a great deal of personal charisma herself. Never mind these charges of being homely. Um, they met in the Vatican during a Holy Week, and shortly after she'd arrived in Rome with the Springs, and and uh, had a covert romance. She became pregnant and uh, had to conceal that pregnancy, and. Um, uh, help, hoped that the revolution would succeed so she could um, live as a family with Giovanni Asoli, this um, rather down-at-the-heels uh, royalty, <laughs> um, and their son, Nino. But the, there was a the revolution did not succeed then, and, and they were left to scramble and ultimately uh, return to the United States. And it was on that voyage that all sadly were drowned in 1850. She was 40 and Giovanni 30 and their little son only two. It's just amazing when I when you get to that point in the book, you're going, oh no, there's so mm. much Margaret Fuller you think that, of what she could have done mm-hmm. that she didn't get to do. So we will never know the rest of the story on that. But what, what I want to get back to now is sort of like wrapping it up is mm-hmm. what is the takeaway for the reader and what can we learn from Margaret Fuller? I mean, she's a very inspiring figure. Uh, mm-hmm. For me, at least, I think she's very inspiring, uh, very erudite, just uh, strong, uh, earnest, uh, things, yeah. that, very admirable things that we can, I think today a lot of uh, women and men can look to. Mm-hmm. I think so, yes. I think she had a real sense of her capabilities and wasn't going to be told no and wasn't going to tell herself no. Maybe that's even more important. I think she was very aware of the ways that we limit ourselves um, and, you know, and don't lean in, to borrow a phrase. Um, she was a big leaner in and a stander upper and speaker outer. And, um, you know, it's just very thrilling to see someone, uh, a woman take this kind of, um, uh, I don't know, I, I just feel that this is a headlong rush toward, toward a, a destiny and, and, and filled with self-belief, um, maybe more than most of us could muster, but if we had, you know, a tenth of what she had and, and let ourselves live toward it, um, I think we'd, we'd all be stronger people and uh, doing a lot more in the world would be a better place. And especially with the odds that she, you know, her uh, yes. situation, the culture and the politics and everything at the time, the odds against her were immense. Mm. And uh, we don't even understand uh, half of what she was encountering. Mm-hmm. 
But Yet I think she was very uh, canny at finding opportunities and seeing what was there. And that's something that we also are living with today is the uh, world of you know new technologies, new opportunities that we can, almost really can't understand. And that was very true then. You know, newspapers were suddenly proliferating. There were railroads. Uh, there were new ways of communicating and and everything seemed kind of scary and in flux. And there were also terrible financial crashes that, you know, big reversals and the major fortunes were suddenly dashed. And, and you know, it was a time not unlike ours. Um, and uh, so I think that's another way that her life speaks to us today. Um, she was someone who uh, wasn't going to um, give in to uh, ill fortune and bad luck, and and um, she was going to make her own luck. Megan, you have been very generous with your time, and have one final question. Sure. What are you working on? Well, I you know I made a giant leap into the 20th century, and I'm writing about uh, in some ways a very different woman, Elizabeth Bishop, who is a wonderful poet, born in 1911 and lived until 1979. Um, and she was a woman who loved women, and that was another uh, aspect of her own struggle to be to live the kind of life she wanted to lead. Um, and uh, but I also happened to have been a student of hers at Harvard. I took the last poetry workshop that she taught there in 1976, and so this is a very personal book for me. Um, I'm kind of returning to my own early ambitions to be a poet. And um, and it's it's a wonderful challenge to capture a whole different uh, era and different kind of life and to really be um, engaged with with words. Um, my first love. Thank you, Megan, and thank, thank you, you to our listeners for tuning in to another edition of New Books and Gender Studies. I would enjoy hearing from you. Please drop me an email at newbooks.gender@gmail.com. This is your host, Lillian Barger. 